Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my huge pleasure to welcome Georgia Witten to the pod. Georgia is a senior genomic data scientist at the Wellcome Sanger Institute, and she is also a uh, broadcaster on YouTube. Uh, she hosts Genomics with Georgia and is bringing new talent into the tech and science field through volunteering with Code First Girls and many other great activities. Georgia, welcome to the pod. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. And give us a bit of a sense, if you can, of maybe just sort of how you got excited by this whole field. You know, was there a a kind of a moment, um, a magic moment when you thought, ah, this is my calling, or did you sort of drift into it? Or how did you become a, a senior genomic data scientist at the Wellcome Sanger Institute? Honestly, I just kind of stumbled here, but I'm very glad that I ended up stumbling here. So initially, when I was growing up, I actually had creative dreams. I wanted to be a TV presenter. I wanted to be an actress. I just wanted to be performing somehow. And then I went to go and start my A-levels doing drama, sociology, English. And two weeks into my A-levels, I thought, actually, hey, you know what? I've changed my mind. I'm going to do the sciences and just switched all of my A-levels to all of the sciences. And I'm so, so glad I did, because from that point, I just fell in love with the way that the human body works and how genetics just it just can explain all of these incredible processes going on inside us every second of every day. I just found, I found it fascinating. And I think the thing that really intrigued me about genetics and genomics was how such a tiny little change in somebody's genome can have such a huge, huge impact, just not, and not just on them, on all of their relatives. Cause yeah, your, your genetic information isn't just your own. It belongs to your ancestry too. So I, I found that whole concept just absolutely fascinating. I don't want to press too hard on, you know, personal stories, but changing all of your A-levels a few weeks in doesn't sound like a stumble. I don't know if there was a bolt of lightning from the blue or anything, but can you explain even to yourself, I guess, why sometimes we can't, why you made that choice? It seems like quite a, quite a cool and quite a dramatic change of direction. Yeah, you're right. It definitely was. I think it comes down to two things. So when I was growing up, I grew up with my grandparents and unfortunately, grandparents don't have their health for as long as parents typically do. So I was kind of growing up with inevitable illness coming in my young adulthood. So that was always in the back of my mind. Um, and then when I was going through my A-levels, I'd already lost my granddad and my nan was starting to get sick. So not only did I not have anybody to ask about what A-levels I should be doing, I was kind of acting on my own. But then I had this underlying deteriorating family health going on in the background. So I think the culmination of not having anybody to ask and then going on my instincts of two people I really care about either, you know, are suffering or are going to suffer. So I really want to do something that 
can kind of help other people in the world somewhere someday have you know longer better health wow that's incredibly inspiring and i mean an, an incredible an incredibly brave decision to make as a whatever 16 17 year old um i think i was far more selfish and short-sighted about the world at that point in my life so i can only <laughs> i can only salute you for that thank you for sharing that and so from from there you went to university and sort of did, did more studies like and um, tell us about that yes so again a bit of a windy path i went to a pre-med course because i thought how do i use my science a levels well i do medicine right that's the only thing you can kind of do with science a levels turns out i definitely didn't want to do medicine i didn't i just didn't enjoy it i was more interested in understanding how things worked and why rather than applying things clinically so I then changed track and did a BSc in molecular biology and genetics and yeah, found that that was my calling. That was where my genuine interests and passions really lied. Uh, so that's what I did studying wise. And that was as far as my academic studying went because I was lucky enough to find other ways to grow my skill set rather than academically from that point. Fantastic. And um, I think we should also be clear that, you know, having a BSc in areas like computational biology is, is hardly um, under, you know, underachieving academically. Um, and so you went sort of straight, straight into the world of work from there. How did you find that? I mean, one of the things we found, I, I found interesting talking to a bunch of people who work in genomics on this pod is there's almost always some kind of, oh, I had to schlep around a bunch of labs to find someone who'd give me a job or whatever. It seems like as an industry, we need to make it easier for people to find the entry points. But did, did you find that or did you find it reasonably straightforward to find a good fit with that role? Yeah, completely. So I think it was Holly Ellis, who was on your podcast previously, mentioned something that I really related to. And she said that you have to make as if I'm, I'm so sorry. She said something like, you know, you have to make your own opportunities and yeah. I think nothing fell into my lap, nothing aligned with what I was doing, but I went out of my way to force people to listen to me. It's, it's difficult as well. So I had to work through my degree to financially support myself. So taking on unpaid voluntary work just wasn't an option. Yeah. So I had to find a way of still having an income whilst kind of trying to make these opportunities for myself. So the, the way that I kind of got my kind of lucky breaks was, I ended up doing an internship uh, funded by the Genetic Society after my undergrad. And again, so usually this internship is aimed at people in their second year, midway through their degree. <laughs> but I couldn't, I was working full time, needed money for my hospitality work. So doing mid-degree internship wasn't even on my mental agenda. So I still applied for this internship that technically I wasn't eligible for. Um, and it was really competitive and they still awarded me and my supervisor the funding. Um, so it's just kind of thinking outside the box in terms of what you think you can apply for. And then the same thing happened about my job at Sanger. So there was an open advert because they were expanding their genomic surveillance department because COVID hit and it was 2020 and genomic surveillance scientists were in desperate need. So I applied for this advert, but the advert said that you needed a master's and you needed all of this coding experience. And I had no master's. I'd been learning Python for a year, but this was at the end of my degree. So I'd still, it wasn't full-time Python. It was, you know, dabbling in bits of Python when I could. So I was underqualified, um, but I applied for the role and 
after meeting people and kind of persuading them that I had the potential to excel in the job, I ended up, they ended up creating a role for me. They weren't looking for a junior person, but they saw my kind of experience and my desire to learn and they created this role for me. So I think one thing I've learned is the fact that just because a role isn't, you know, out there or described doesn't mean that it's, you know, not there waiting for you in some way or form. You've just got to communicate in the right ways and put your story across in a way that appeals to people. That's a hugely powerful story. And 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 also a reminder to to me to others in the um, sector that you know we need to make it easier. Um, so that's that's nudging me to go and have more conversations on this topic, which is good. Um, so let's talk a bit about what you and the team that you're part of at Sanger were then doing during the pandemic. I think you know we heard so much about this through the first waves of the pandemic, in particular around how you know. The UK was leading the world here. We were contributing more to sort of pathogen sequencing and analytics than all of the other countries in the world combined and so on. What did it feel like to be in the midst of that kind of maelstrom and, and what were you and the team doing as part of that broader picture? So I think in general, it was it was a privilege, but it was also terrifying because you were seeing firsthand the enormity of the problem before it was kind of communicated on standard news channels. So my friends were constantly asking me, you know, are we going to have another lockdown? What's going on? And I've been all these Slack group messages with these, you know, world leading scientists talking about what they thought was going to happen. So a privilege and terrifying was what that experience was. So the team that I was working in. So the reason why we were so well set up to be the kind of genomic surveillance sequencing hub you know, in, you know, the majority of the, the UK was because we already had a strong scientific understanding of genomic surveillance, but this was based on malaria. So the kind of the initial setup that we had was malaria genomic surveillance scientific understanding. And then we had the insanely huge operational sequencing capabilities that the Sanger Institute have. So combining these two things meant that we were in the perfect place to take on all of this extra responsibility with the pandemic. So the team that I was working in when I first joined Sanger was the, the COVID analytics team. And so we had all of these viral samples coming in from all around the UK. So you contracted COVID and you went and had a, a PCR done to test if you were positive or not. We were then shipped to the Sanger uh, then we have cherry picked uh, samples depending on where they'd come from the UK to ensure that we had a accurate understanding of coverage across the UK. And we'd sequence those samples and we could a you know how many positive cases are coming from whereabouts in the UK and b identifying new variants that are popping up. So. There were many, many different labs and organizations that were, you know, contributing via COG UK to all of this analytics and sequencing that was going on. So specifically in the team that I was working with, we were getting all the genomic sequence data that was sequenced at Sanger. And then we could we could just see what variants were popping up in what locations and when. And then people within our unit could then communicate this with the government and have discussions on whether we should have lockdowns or more tiered imposing that to that point about variants just very pragmatically you're looking at a bunch of data i mean 
this is probably an invitation to get overly technical, but it, in, in a way that someone simple like me can understand if you can, how do you decide if something's a new variant or not? And, and how do you decide whether to communicate, whether or when to communicate that, you know, it became so politicized, right? How did you make those calls or how did the team make those calls? So there are actually kind of specific programs written by other like academic labs around the country where these kind of these lineage definitions were kind of decided on and then the community as a whole could then use software to then lay these variants and then communicate them in a way that was then understood by the entirety of the community and the public as opposed to naming their own images and variants different things so that kind of collaborative environment that was nurtured through the pandemic between all of these scientists to then communicate results in the same way where it was final and uh just made me kind of fall in love with the community fantastic maybe before we move on from your work at sanger so you did this amazing work through the pandemic at sanger you know what are you focused on now and what are your hopes for the future with that work so after i'd finished my kind of initial succumbent on covid i went kind of back but it was my first instance working with them to the malaria team so like i said our, our malaria team was the foundations of setting up the genomic surveillance work at sanger so i've currently am involved in working on the genomics of plasmodium uh, which is the parasite that causes malaria and the thing that i'm kind of more closely focused on is amplicon sequencing so a lot of the time in kind of human genetics we talk about how whole genome sequencing is the kind of the the north star like the the shining gold of what you want to do with genomics because you can see the whole genome and that's incredible but the difference with malaria is the fact that malaria is happening in you know low and middle income countries and they don't have this huge funding that we have um you know at places like sanger and gel for large scale whole genome sequencing so what we kind of try to do is use whole genome sequencing so getting that whole genome of the parasite or the mosquito and then using that to inform how we design targeted panels for amplicon sequencing so we've seen the way that genomic surveillance for covid was able to cover all these parts of the world and people could upload their data and there was all this massive data sharing and informing and it was incredible but the covid genome is so so small in comparison to looking at you know mosquito and plasmodium and obviously human genomes so we're never going to get whole genome sequencing at large scale across all of the world so we need to think of ways where we can implement what we can learn from whole genome sequencing create more specific and scientifically valid and robust amplicon panels and then we can then deploy them in these malaria endemic countries and allow and facilitate and catalyze genomic surveillance across the world so that's kind of what i'm involved in and where i hope the field to to kind of grow to because at the moment at sanger we do a lot of sequencing at sanger but i think the end goal is to enable you know sequencing across the world wherever you are and um, and then people can kind of take ownership of that themselves from sample to result as opposed to having to you know rely on on partners to to get that data very cool and as as you say often in low and middle income countries with with far fewer resources so that's you know, hugely inspirational to be able to kind of open source and spread those kind of approaches fantastic 
I was getting flashbacks as you were talking to about the difference between COVID, parasite and human uh, genomes to being challenged by well-meaning people during the first wave of the pandemic about why we couldn't sequence as many human genomes as we could COVID genomes. <laughs> and I was like, well, if you think about it in terms of... Uh, how many base pairs of sequencing that would be you know we could quite rapidly into the sort mm -hmm. of you know more more base pairs than there are atoms in the universe kind of uh, territory of numbers um anyway yeah. that's hugely inspiring understanding that kind of expansive vision about how we can empower whole communities to kind of self-serve on some of um these tools and i guess maybe drawing a, a slightly tangential link but about empowerment you you've talked about your own kind of journey into genomics and having to kind of create your own opportunities. How can we continue to make it easier for women, for people with different backgrounds to get into this field? So I think from my personal experience, I found it very difficult to find the information I needed to get myself to the next stage. I think a lot of the time, these industries, these, you know, these teams, these jobs, these opportunities, they can be quite closed off circles. And there isn't enough people, I think, making this more transparent, um, you know, A, in terms of what actually goes on behind the scenes and B, in terms of the skills that you need to get into these certain positions and where you can go and learn them. So I think traditionally in science, a lot of places, you know, would specify PhD, but they mm. wouldn't say why a PhD? They just make a lot of assumptions of the skills that you gain on that PhD that then make you eligible for that role. But what about the people who's, you know, no one in their family has done a PhD. They don't even know what that stands for, means, entails. There's there's not enough transparency of what that skill set actually is and how you can go and build that skill set without doing, <laughs> you know, things like PhDs. So I think in order to empower people to get into this field of you know, genomics and especially on the computational side, there needs to be there needs to be more effort in sharing platforms and skill sets that people can go and learn to get in get in here. Absolutely. And so I guess both through the work that you're doing with Code First Girls and also your Genomics with Georgia programs, you're trying to make that I guess sort of more accessible maybe maybe tell us about um both of those pieces so code for Oz is awesome organization it's actually one of the courses that i took when i was first learning so, um they're a profit organization and they're predominantly run by volunteers of people who worked in the industry and i say people it's not just women that volunteer everybody can volunteer for, for code first girls um so it's run by many volunteers that teach these courses and they teach them to people who either want to do career switching um, or people who want to just pick up a new skill. And you have to apply to go on these courses, but the application is just to make sure that you would get value from volunteers' time. It's not, you know, a very you know hard application. Um, and yeah, so this was one of the first courses I did when I was first learning. Um, they host them at a lot of universities, or now it's kind of remotely. And it was the first time where I'd I'd sat in a room surrounded by other, you know, women and non-binary people who all wanted to learn to code. Whereas previously, before I'd gone to my Code First Girls course, 
I hadn't been able to see anybody else like me trying to break into this sector. If anything, I'd, I'd faced a lot of people not believing that I, I could learn to code. And then suddenly I was surrounded by a room of people who were like-minded and they wanted to do the same thing. And it, it was just really, really reassuring to know that I wasn't just this, you know, lonely girl trying to learn Python. Like there were so many other people like me who wanted to learn these skills. So the work I do now is now that I, I, I learned Python and I'm a, now I am a Python girl. Um, I now volunteer teaching Python with Code First Girls. Um, and it's just, it's been an awesome kind of circle to have them as the first organization that kind of validated my desire to get into this field and then now be able to bring other people together, find you know people that they can relate to and then teach them the fundamentals of, of Python. So. Yeah, really awesome organization. Without wanting to overinterpret, it feels like there is a similar sense of trying to break down barriers or kind of give back to the community on, with, through the, um, the work you're doing on genomics with Georgia. Um, how did the idea for doing that first come to you? So I've been wanting to do a YouTube channel for so long, and I've always used YouTube as an educational tool. And whenever, whenever I search genomic data science, not a lot would ever come up. A lot of the time we talk about this broad term of bioinformatics so you know biology combined with informatics but there's this field of genomic data science that doesn't really get a lot of limelight although it definitely exists and the more people i meet in this field there is a definite huge field of genomic data science that there isn't there wasn't too much information out there specifically on a what it was why it was different from bioinformatics and b how do you learn the skill sets to get that job because I love my job. I, I feel so lucky and so privileged and it's fascinating and it's wonderful. And I just want more people to know what this field is and be at least tempted to learn the skill set to, to break into this because I stumbled here by chance and I want other people to have the opportunity to not stumble here by chance, but develop those skills and you know be able to work in this field that that's growing exponentially. It's only going to keep getting bigger and more meaningful and more impactful. And I got here with my undergraduate degree in genetics and there is such a lack of pushing of coding onto undergraduates. And the only reason why I learned to code during my undergrad was just because I applied for this, this internship. I didn't get it because I couldn't code. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize this was a barrier. I didn't know they do this in genetics. What is coding? Maybe I'll just go and have a look what's going on. Ended up falling in love with it and also finding out that so many of the jobs in genetics require you to have coding knowledge. But during my undergraduate degree, that just wasn't communicated. So I just really want people to understand that there are other routes into genomic data science that don't involve getting postgraduate qualifications. They involve learning to code. And if we tell undergraduates that earlier, then they will have more opportunities when it comes to finishing their degree. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you should also do a sort of roadshow tour around um, the various university campuses in the, in the UK <laughs> as well, and forcibly insert coding into the curriculum. Um, fantastic. So the, the point about different voices, people with different experiences and not all being about, um, you know, undergrad to masters to PhD to postdoc to um, to whatever 
you know, one of the reasons for doing this podcast is to get a range of different voices um, who are involved in the, the field of genomics. What are some voices that you think we should hear more from in this field, you know, as genomics is coming into the mainstream? I think we need to hear from not just the people that are applying the genomics. We need to hear from the users of the genomics. So I think there's a lot of tendency to focus on people who are delivering the information or people that are generating the information, but there's not enough focus on the people who receive that and what they want to know and what they don't want to know and how they interpret the data that you give them. So I think, especially in the NHS, the role of genetic counsellors is, is huge and so important, but there aren't enough genetic counsellors, you know, to, to go around. So I think there needs to be a lot of work talking to people about how they interpret the genetic information and what would make, what would make it easier for them to interpret that with the, the tools that we can potentially give them. And then in terms of the kind of practitioners, I think talking to people who have come from non-traditional backgrounds. So a lot of the time, you know, you see people in these fields and they've gone to top universities and they've had, you know, a lot of, you know, privilege and assistance. And I think it's really important that we, we show to every person who's looking into going into this field that there isn't one standard route here. You can come into genetics from all sorts of backgrounds. You can come in from computational biology, you know, you can come in from a physics background, you can come in through all sorts of different routes. And I think shedding light on the non-traditional routes in here will make people more likely to consider coming here. It's, you know, it's not a closed door. Fantastic. Well, you've you've thrown the gauntlet down there. We'll, uh, we'll uh, bring, bring more of those uh, voices to bear. And if you, if you imagine someone is listening to this podcast who is maybe like a sort of 15 or 16 year old, maybe a girl like yourself thinking about uh, life choices, what would you, uh, what would you say to her in 2022? You know, what, what will the world look like in 2030? What should, uh, what should she be doing to prepare for that world? I think we've seen how much technology has already advanced the field of genomics in the past 20 years. And it's only advancing it at a faster rate every single day. So there is no doubt that the way that computers are becoming more advanced is going to, well, it is, and it's going to continue revolutionizing the way that we understand genomics and the way that we apply that to both the healthcare of humans and just the healthcare of the entire world. So understanding the science and understanding the way that computers work and meshing those two things together is it's a privilege and it's it's phenomenal and it's definitely something that anybody out there should should consider getting into super well consider me inspired to get into genomics <laughs> um, <laughs> georgia thank you so much for um spending the time with us anyone interested in finding out more should simply search genomics with georgia and uh, that'll pop up and thanks for everything you're doing and thanks for making the time today. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.